Welcome to this bonus episode of 8 with 8, a podcast from Ohio State Support Team 8, where we share what's on our minds and what's in the research from the field of education. We are thrilled to be wrapping up a fascinating season we've had so much fun doing called Why Are We Still Doing That? with the best possible ending, an interview with the authors. Now, if you've been listening all along, you know that we've been inspired to explore why it is that some educational practices continue to hang on despite empirical evidence showing that they aren't effective or that they even do harm. So as I said, today, we're gonna talk to the authors of the great little book by the same name, Why Are We Still Doing That? Drs. Parasita and Bill Himmeley. They're both on the faculty of the Department of Early, Middle and Exceptional Education at Millersville University in Pennsylvania. And in addition, they have conducted over 500 keynote featured and professional presentations around the world, both inside and outside the field of education. One of their major areas of interest is cognitively engaging learning experiences. And they're the authors of the ASCD best-selling book, Total Participation Techniques, Making Every Student an Active Learner. Prior to their careers in higher ed and on the speaking, consulting, and writing circuit, Bill and Parasita both worked in classroom environments. Bill is a speech language pathologist and English as a second language teacher. And Parasita, as an elementary and middle school teacher in bilingual and multilingual classrooms and then later as a district administrator serving English language learning students in a high incidence district. So obviously their combined wealth of training and experience, practical applications makes them incredibly knowledgeable and credible on the topic of evidence-based teaching practices. But I think what we love the most about them is just how down to earth and real life they are about these challenges that our profession faces. We hope that you enjoy hearing from them as much as we did. Thanks, Janine, for that wonderful intro. With me today, we have both authors of the book, Why Are We Still Doing That? Um, both Persida and Bill Himmeley. And I cannot um, be more excited. So go ahead and say hi, Persida. Hi. hi. Excited to be here. And Bill. Hi. Hello. Yeah. That way everyone knows the, your voice. Okay. Oh. A little bit easier in this time yeah. than other times I've interviewed people with similar voices. So as you know, you've been so kind to uh, agree to be on the podcast and kind of end our uh, our latest season that is was inspired by your newest book. And we we like to, of course, focus on the alternatives to those problematic practices, which is the other part of the title. So we want to make sure that you know that we, we've really been trying to pivot on when we do identify those problematic practices, what's next. Our audience for this podcast generally is, well, they're everybody. People listening right now, you're, you, you contain multitudes, but most of them uh, we find through the little bit of, of uh, demographics that we know are our school leaders, district leaders, coaches, and teachers who are just trying to expand their um, professional development uh, opportunities. So that's with that in mind, um, I just wanted to kind of backtrack because this is not your first rodeo, as we say. You have been uh, producing wonderful resources for educators for many years. And uh, I first believe that your uh, Prisida you you first started in literacy, correct? Or working with literacy. Can you tell us a little bit about that kind of work and how that began? Sure. Actually, um, I was a uh, kindergarten, first, second, third 
and sixth, seventh, and eighth grade teachers. So I've taught in all of those grade levels. Um, when I taught first grade, um, you know, I just felt this immediate panic that that um, most of my students were English learners, and I I just knew that if I did not, if they didn't exit first grade reading, uh, I would have really felt terrible. Like I, it, there's no. I didn't want to leave it up to chance that they they'd learn to read and learn to read well. And so um, literacy became a real interest of mine. Prior to that, it had been serving in multilingual classrooms or serving English learners as well as just curriculum instruction. But literacy became a real focus when I, I was really kind of put to the gun teaching first grade uh, from coming from middle school. And uh, I realized if they, if I didn't do it, there was no guarantee it would get done. And so um, for me, you know, total participation techniques and teaching English learners uh, how to read all of my students. So I had 25 students and 18 were English learners in my first first grade class. And uh, I just couldn't leave things to chance. I just needed a definite uh, evidence that they were using every minute, so to speak, uh, to really develop their literacy. And at the same time, I didn't want to uh, put that panic on them. I didn't want them to feel as though uh, school was this incredible burden they couldn't handle. So I had to find fun ways to do that. And I think that, um, I think I did. And, and uh, if you, if you, if we have a section in our website that's dedicated to growing readers. And so some of that is, is using my exact examples from teaching in first and second and third grade. Um, but, you know, I, every one of those first graders, um, I taught first grade for two years and then I followed my um, students. I, I taught second and third grade as well. And I, every one of them left reading because it was such a, such a, it was so important to me to uh, make sure that it wasn't again left to chance. And so. Well, that's, that's, yeah. a, that's amazing. And to go from seventh grade to first grade, that's quite a transition. And, uh, and I know that a lot of our, our listeners or, or their teachers have experienced those great big changes and it's really yeah. hard to do that. And I, I applaud yeah. you. So Bill, how do you, um, uh, think about and how, how did your work kind of dovetail with that? Yeah, you know, for in my own experience, when we moved out to Los Angeles and started working in some from originally from New York, but then moving out to Los Angeles and working in some of the, the classrooms out there, just seeing the the frust the, the frustration from classroom teachers who wanted so badly to help students, specifically English as a second language, uh, ESL students, trying to help them to learn content and how to do that in a classroom and to do that well. And many of the, the teachers that I was working with out there, they didn't know a word of that second language. They didn't feel well prepared. They were just sometimes out of uh, a sense of almost frustration, desperation, just sort of putting this on someone else's plate. And that for me personally, really became a, a real sort of a passion of how to support teachers who don't feel adequately prepared. They don't feel they've had enough courses they don't feel they, they know enough, but to serve the students well. And that's sort of, for me, sort of started on a, a real path and a journey of supporting those teachers who don't feel prepared, but they have someone in their classroom. How do you make it all work? 
Wonderful. Yes. We, we have um, some schools that I, I, or friends of mine who work at schools where there are children in the school who there's 10 different languages that need to be addressed. Um, and the way that they do that is, is no feet. Uh, it's pretty close to a miracle is kind yes. of like the amount of, it shouldn't be, and they make it work, but they make it look easy is what I'm saying. Yeah. So um, that's great. And so is, uh, so what brought about the new book? Um, what was the inspiration behind it? And like how you went about it? Because the one thing that we love so much about the book was that it presented these problematic practices in a very conversational way, in a funny way. You are presenting some great movie quotes that we all talked about in, in our office. And you quickly identify the problematic practice, why it's, why it's problematic with research, and you pivot to the alternative uh, to that and what you can do. And I think it's a great resource, especially for school leaders. Um, how did that come about and how did you develop it that way? Proceed and I, we teach at the same university. We've been here 20 years now at Murrisville University, and we drive in together, we drive home together. And, I, you know, so many times when we were uh, driving home and just thinking about some of the practices that we've seen, seen at times wonderful practices, but at times, yes, they were those practices when we would literally be asking ourselves, asking in each other as we go home, why are we still doing that? Now, we were have reflected upon as how we start off our book when we first became teachers and I'm going to be 60 in a few months so it was a while I mean it was such a different context teachers had to wear pantyhose <laughs> you know and that was literally a rule and we always joke what what administrator is going to check that but whatever you know and you know the, every teacher lounge was a was a like a smoke filled Aerosmith concert. And, I even and, remember that as a as a student, like going in there after school with my mom for like PTA, yeah. and it, oh. be, you know, I didn't think anything of it at the time, but they're right. they're smoking. Yeah, yeah. Right. and and you know, and and we don't do that. We don't have these smoke filled teacher lounges. We don't enforce, you know, women wearing pantyhose. You know, we don't do that. We've gotten better. But then, but then we would at times think about some of these practices that we've seen way back when, and yet we still see them popping on up in some of these classrooms. So it was just honestly an honest question. Why are we still doing some of these practices that we know are not only for some are just not effective, they're actually bad. They're actually harmful for our students. So that's, it was just driving home. And then we said, let's start putting something together. Yeah, over and over again, I feel like we just address these things in a conversation uh, with each other. But um, like, if you if you take a look at the books that we've written, um, some just wrote themselves. They were just easy books to write. This one is the hardest book we've ever written. And, you know, it is because we, we were just really trying to walk a fine line between pointing out a practice that has been um, that has been critiqued well in research, and yet we still see it all the time in the classrooms. And so um, walking that line between, okay, it's it's bad. That doesn't make you a bad teacher. You know, how do we how do we address the practice without making people feel horrible about their profession? It's such a hard profession already. 
Right. It is exactly like that's a great that's that's the tone you struck because you can't there's there are other books, to be frank, that say teachers stop doing that. And that, I mean, and that is more aimed at the teacher themselves, but they have to be like yeah. the ones to pick up the book, which yeah. to me is kind of, you know, kind of hard to understand. Whereas um, this one is something that and I, I was going to ask you this later, but um to me, this is something you could do a book study in your, yeah. in your building, and it would be kind of non-threatening uh, way. And hopefully through self-reflection, people might be able to identify things that they're doing that might be, um, uh, it, like you said, n- n- at best neutral, not, not moving the needle at all. And at worst creating, um, uh, you know, some deficits. So I appreciate that. So it doesn't read like it was difficult to write, but I do have to ask, were there any other practices that were fell on the cutting room floor that you just didn't, you had to cut, even though you wanted to add them? Is there any that you want to share? Yeah, well, there, there were a few. Um, and so one of them is, um, relegating responsibility to the specialist. You know, that idea that uh, I, the classroom teacher, um, I do one thing and this ESL teacher, this special education teacher does another thing and we're not doing the same thing. They're doing kind of a secret magic formula in their rooms that, you know, I can't do in my classroom. Um, and I, I think that that's really, really detrimental to English learners. And so we actually proposed one specifically for English learners. There are so many um, Mm -hmm. little things that come with that. Um, So one is, one is focusing on not relegating. um, I love, I love that. And it, and it does, it's, that is a huge one. It's hard to get the research down to, um, and there is, it's out there in some ways, but like, we just know it. We just know yeah, that like it's right. to be siloed off and to not work together. Oh, yeah. we do co-teaching. Um, uh, we present co-teaching resources and, and uh, training uh, in our, through our office and really trying to help our specialists and our classroom teachers and everybody work together um, in that mm-hmm. in those uh, best practices models. But it takes a lot of training and time and yeah. resources and scheduling yeah. too. And yeah. um, that's a big one that I look at. Let me just jump in and tell you a problematic practice I keep yeah. seeing is, is the master schedule that does not yeah. necessarily make sense, does not allow for uh, planning time, common planning time, especially I'm yeah. a secondary person. I'm a middle school, high school. It's either yeah. wonderful and these people have like two full periods a day to work together or they see each other once a month. It's like feast or famine. And um, that is something that I get very passionate about is kind of the structural aspect of how we just do school and not allowing for common planning time with teachers. But you also have to give them support in that common planning time. That's not just like do this data sheet or something like that. So yes, that's my point of passion but bill did you want to add anything yeah well you know yeah it's that whole sense of like short-term gain but a long-term loss Mm. what was the the movie the one with the um one good stomach food for my ideal weight was it (laughs) the devil wears prada yeah yeah that's that's emily blunt's character i love that yeah (laughs) yeah and that's i think what what, we know we have to yeah yeah, i'm just just one stomach 
uh, flew away from my goal weight. You know, this idea that we know we have to get these kids, especially after coming past from this experience that we've all had collectively, you know, with the virtual. And when we look at the, the scores of these kids coming out of that and how it's even more than a summer slide, unfortunately. So then there's this sense we have to accelerate this learning. We have to get these kids caught up quick. So then we might be tempted to do some practices that will give us that short-term gain but in the long run, it's going to take us back more than a few. And so, yeah, I, so I told, we totally identify with that sense uh, of, again, of needing to do something out of sense of panic. But oh, well, that kind of that'll allow us to jump right into some of the episodes that we uh, produced in because we are so inspired by your book. And hopefully you see that as a as a homage. And the last, the most recent one was on shortchanging social studies. And I think that that um, kind of shows you that uh, the short-term gains, we, you know, we need to, to bump up ELA. We need to give more time to literacy. Oh, I love literacy all day long, but at the expense of social studies and science, of course, and that's in your book as well. And we explored that um, uh, in our last episode. So again, is there anything you want to say about um, shortchanging social studies and, and anything that's kind of come up for you since you wrote the book? Well, it, this is huge. Okay, this is such a, this is such a problem. I and mean, when we look at, you know, how does language grow? Language grows, you know, ELLs, working with ELLs uh, is our thing, um, along with literacy. How does language grow, language comprehension? It grows from being immersed in an environment where academic language is hidden within contexts we understand. So if we can make sense of these, or help students make sense of social studies content, you know, there's so much rich academic vocabulary in there that we're just abandoning because here we are working on um, just reading itself. If we want students to grow academic language, we need to embed it in what we're doing. They need something to talk about, right? They need, they need, um, they need content. And content we know is a great way of building vocabulary. When we shortchange science and social studies, when we are shortchanging reading, we really are. Um, it is tied together. And so I really think that's, that's essential that we realize it's not like, oh, we need more reading time. So let's get rid of this stuff. It's, we need more reading time. So let's do this stuff. We, we need, we need more reading, uh, comprehension. We need language comprehension. We need, so let's give it this rich kind of, uh, immersive experience in this stuff that really gets kids to read, talk, write, repeat. And you can't do that with just, you know, commercial reading programs. Right. And we luckily, um, I think in Ohio, we really are shifting minds and, and, and uh, rethinking how we do early literacy um, in our, uh, in our schools, but we kind of leave it up to everybody at loose ends from four grades, four through nine. And um, what I feel like we need is like the fourth, fifth, sixth grade teachers need a little bit of boost in their content feel, to feel confident to teach science yeah. and social studies. And yeah. the fourth, sixth, 
well, no, the sixth, seventh, eighth grade teachers need more help with literacy. And we're talking and being scientific, using the science of reading, using the simple uh, view of reading so that they can do that word study, that morphology with those academic words. So exactly. we kind of have to meet in yeah. the middle in a yeah. wonderful yeah. planet in, in the perfect yeah. world. That's right. what we would do. And, um, yeah. you know, it's just about support. We yeah. can't shame people into yeah. it. And people are making these decisions because they think it'll help kids. Um, exactly. But, you, you know, we've yeah. got to be thinking long-term. And one of yeah. the things we talked about in that uh, episode was we need it because it's great for discussion and discussion is so vital, but it also is part of making good citizens when you're talking about social studies yes. and making right. curious citizens when you're talking right. about science. So it all goes into that. So another episode that uh, was uh, very um, interesting or just very, I just remember it is uh, episode where we talked about um, the importance of play and the importance of not reducing recess. And it kind of goes into other kind of punitive measures that, you know, retention of students and, and things like that. And really people aren't doing these things because they're horrible, mean people. They think it's what's good for kids. But what you are trying to say is the research does not bear that out. Is there anything you want to say about some of those like punitive measures or, or things or behavior charts you know, public, um, public measures of behavior that, um, research doesn't support. Have you gotten any feedback from that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I think Bill had a comment. Well, I, I just, um, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. Just, and I love this question, the importance of science and social studies. You know, when I think about children, I think they, they still want to come to school and have those big world questions that they have answered. You know, why, where does the water go when it falls from the sky? Or why are shadows of different lengths during the day? Those questions that they have as they're looking around and experiencing their world, and we bring those into the science and social studies. You know, I think, you know, children don't write up uh, that, wake up that day and, and have a maybe a mindset of, oh, I hope someone teaches me how to write a persuasive essay today. But they do have maybe, I you know, questions as they see and experience the world that they want answered. And I think whenever we shortchange that science and social studies, we're, lose, we're missing that great point of connection that to get kids interested in into what we're showing them in, in our classroom. So. Absolutely. And I have a um, a cousin or a person I know, let's just say, let's not identify, but she really is doesn't feel comfortable teaching social studies. She's just a fifth grade teacher and her, uh, but she loves teaching science and the per other person or grade mate um, loves to teach social studies. And that's okay if, if you have a passion for it. Um, and so it is administrators need to kind of be looking out for those opportunities that in the long run, yes, that might mess up your schedule and you're only, you're doing that and it, it might create, but think about it. If you have somebody that's truly passionate about mm. one thing and, yeah. you know, listen to the teachers when you're making these, these, these uh, decisions, because you want someone who feels confident. If you don't have the time to make them feel confident, um, you, you want somebody there who is, and I love that. It's like, you want them to yeah. be able to answer those questions um, well. So Back to the other question. Um, so we're talking about some of these punitive measures, these these uh, well-meaning kind of measures to make our 
students better people or to um, regulate their behavior or, you know, because we, we think it's the right thing to do um, for the kids in the long term. What do you guys think about uh, some of those? Yeah, so one of the things with punitive behaviors is, um, you know, we've done a few presentations on this and the new teachers particularly will will struggle. And um, they, they feel like uh, what we're saying is that you ought to just have a free for all, you know, um, <laughs> that, you know, basically you're just gonna let kids get away with, you know, behaviors that are, that are not healthy, that are dangerous, that are, that are um, just not going to help in terms of, and we are not at mm -hmm. all talking about creating this permissive classroom mm -hmm. where anything goes. No. We're talking about helping the student grow in his or her behaviors uh, or their behaviors. We're talking about help us, helping a student understand what's at the root of what they're doing and how it hurts the classroom, how it hurts their peers. And so how do we do that without just making them pull a clip, you know, or change a clip? pull a color. Um, there are ways to do that by just taking an extra few seconds of your time to sit with a student and to talk about it and to, and to have the student, you'll be shocked uh, if you ask a student, so what's going to help you um, address this uh, behavior next time? You know, you'll be shocked. They'll come up with solutions. We're say, not you need to move my seat away from Billy. <laughs> Exactly. They will come up with the solutions. Yeah. They will. We just have to trust that they, that they, given the opportunity, they can think for themselves. And so we're not at all talking about creating this permissive anything goes classroom. We're talking about a creating a classroom that actually works in the long term, so that students can can actually modify and address their own behaviors without us constantly. Uh, having to, you know, to nip at them, you know? And so how do we do that? Well, you know, it, some very um, mature teachers who've been around forever, they, they kind of learned this the hard way. And you, you know, we ask our student teachers sometimes, what is their behavior management? How do they manage behaviors? And they'll say they don't, they just, the students are just really good. And they don't realize so much has gone into that. You know, and um, much of that is just treating a child like not just a stop the behavior right now, but how do I help this child grow so that they can handle and, and um, self-regulate? And, and that takes an investment of just a little bit more time, a little bit more uh, long-term gain um, versus a short-term answer. I was going to interject, regulate the word regulate and regulation really kind of like help me better, even with my own kids, instead yes. of being like, you're, you know, you're disruptive. No, you are dysregulated, right? Like something's not right yeah, with you. Right. How can I help you regulate? And that right. helped me kind of see things differently. And that was a, a that was a helpful thing for me. I taught seventh yes. grade and yes. um, sometimes <laughs> yes. it's like, it's a, they present their behavior. And I also was told like one day, I don't know who at some conference, no kid wakes up in the morning wanting to, you know, be disruptive and, and be, right. get negative attention. I know some people argue with me that there right, might be right. a few, but, um, you know, they don't do that. Do you, do you watch Abbott elementary? No, so, I've heard oh, that. you've got to check what you just said about those, those more seasoned teachers who just yes. seem to have it. Well, there's a character yeah. who's like, there's an episode all yeah. about that because the one oh. character she's more seasoned and her kids just 
you know, and, and right. the other one is, and I, I love that. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, you know, I just, you know, we put on a little, uh, the quote from Cheryl, page, uh, page 95, Cheryl Venable, uh, 2017, and uh, articulates, recess is vital to the overall health of students. This is page 95. Suppose a supervisor of adult workers decided that eliminating breaks would increase the company's productivity. Would workers accept this? They probably would not. Why then would we decrease or eliminate children's breaks? Recess periods are children's breaks from their jobs as students. You know, and I just sort of like that, that, that mindset. And, you know, again, if our, if our administrators that we're working with those above us said, you know what, I'm going to reduce, I'm going to take away, you know, your R&R time or your whatever time because we are not doing well. It's not, it's not, how would we respond to that? Mm -hmm. no, yeah. Not very well, probably. <laughs> no. That's like the same mindset that our, you know, the students in our classrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the other thing they talked about in that episode is the power of play and in the early grades, especially. And it's it the the separation between learning and play that has happened and how they go together, learning through play. And it's kind of like separating literacy from science and social studies. Like they they could go together, they should go together. So we are we are all just loving what's in here. And the last thing I wanted to mention or ask you about was formative assessment. Um and assessment in general, I feel like that's one of those, the word assessment, the word data, or, um, you know, th those kinds of things really kind of have turned people off or they, they've been used in ways that aren't um, the way they were intended. So um, what do you think about uh, like the formative assessments that really aren't so formative? Uh, well, um, you know, there's a lot of things that has been sold as formative assessments. And there's a quote that um, went, was in the uh, one of the versions before this was whittled down a bit to the um, manageable book. Um, and it was, um, uh, it was a quote by Dylan William where he talks about how, how these companies will, will sell things that are considered quote unquote formative. And um, he, he used the word mendacious. And uh, it just became my favorite word because it's so true, this, this whole concept of these um, monthly uh, tests or, you know, that check students' progress, that is not formative. Formative is checking for understanding. Can you define mendacious for, for all of our listeners yeah. uh, yes. in cars yeah. right now who can't look it up? It's not that I don't know what it means. Just yes. kidding. No, I really don't. Mendacious. Sure. I'm not quite sure. I could use morphology and kind of figure it yeah. out, but go ahead and uh, uh, what do yeah. you, what does mendacious. that mean? Yeah. Mendacious means there's this like trickery involved. Oh. There's this false. Um, Love it representation of what it's really doing and what it's actually what the results are and so um i just i thought that quote i'm sorry i don't have it but um it kind of it was edited out um but it was beautiful because it was it, that's exactly it these are these are not true they're not truly formative assessments and when you think of formative assessment I, you know i think that's one of the most important chapters in our book um yes. It's, it is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, it, I think that um, it, that formative assessment sounds fancy. It sounds um, like 
again, assessment, like you need to take a class and assessment. It is not. In fact, we wrote an entire book on it. Total participation techniques are all formative assessments. Mm -hmm. It's that idea that you're constantly checking, constantly checking, you know, that it can increase uh, growth six to, um, six to nine um, months per year. So to add an additional six to nine months of learning per year, it, I mean, you're talking about real acceleration in things and activities or techniques that students would actually enjoy. It's not It's not like, you know, practicing testing. And it's ensuring that there's learning attached to the uh, teaching. Because you can have teaching, but no learning. But if you use these uh, formative assessments, total participation techniques, you're going to ensure that there's learning with that teaching. If we really believe it's the magic bullet in teaching to get our kids accelerated, to get them caught up to where they need to be, is having teachers in bed where they're hearing from everyone, not just the one raising the hand, who's listening, who's engaged, who's zoning, who's not, who's getting that content. Uh, it's not hard. We just need to remember to put these into those classroom instruction. And that's so important to hear. And in Ohio, we have the Ohio Teacher Evaluation System. It's now 2.0. And assessment, informative assessment, uh, and differentiation based on that is part of that, always has been. And I think part partially we started to separate out like formative assessment became a formal assessment or something and it needed to be like a physical thing or a, you know something that kids yeah. did, whereas it wasn't an observation tool. And I think uh, principals need to make sure that teachers know that they are allowed <laughs> to use more informal techniques as long yeah. as they're maybe t keeping track at the end of each period and checking things off and, yeah. you know, that they can kind of go back and look and teachers need, need to hear that because I feel like some of them don't feel like that's going to be enough, um, right. for, there or they've gotten the message that they need to use one of these tools that was sold to the district. So that's just something I, I always put, you know, sometimes yeah. teachers need permission. They were all good students yeah. when they were into school and they listened to directions. So they're going to listen yeah. to directions and they don't want to get right. in trouble. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, we are almost out of time and you guys have been so generous. Um, and I, I wanted to just end for, for you. Have you, have you received any unexpected feedback in general, uh, from the book? You, you know, have you, have you heard, um, any interesting comments or anything you'd like to share? Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, the rollout, you know, you usually you couldn't probably do it, all the things that you normally would do. Um, but uh, have you received anything that was uh, oh, of note? We get, we get all kinds of feedback. So we get mostly from younger teachers. We get, oh no, but my students like round robin, things like that. And you're like, oh, do they all like it? You know, we're trying to teach all students, not just the top performers. Um, and we, we've gotten some, oh, I've saw a, a review on um, Amazon that was, um, oh, nothing new here. You know, we're in schools uh, almost every day. We're in schools a lot. And let me tell you something, the message here has not gotten around. It is not like all you miss it. So yeah. little things like that. Yeah, I, I think the majority of the feedback that we've gotten has been from teachers saying, I, you know, this has been speaking to my heart for so many yes. years as yeah, well. Exactly. I'm so glad this is now in print, maybe almost feeling they can now go to their admin yeah. or have that, you know, that that permission to do some of these things that they've known in their heart is not always what we should be doing. So we've got a lot of teachers reaching out to us admin as well about that. Thankfully, this is now in print 
because I've known this truth in my heart, but now I can read it and I can see it in print. So we can kind of yeah. So we have gotten feelings. a lot, a lot of um, yeah. you know, I was nodding the whole time, you know, that kind of thing, which is yeah. great. To yeah. Hear. yeah, yeah, and that's what brought us to the book as well. Um, it it yeah. was a kind of water cooler talk because we are in schools as well, and we meet with with administrators, and it's important too to to help administrators know the look fors what they should be looking yeah. for the mm. positive things again people respond to positive reinforcement and praise they don't necessarily respond yes. to negative and sometimes i don't know if administrators know these things and they need to be able to yes. um, identify it and that's why i like the book because it's it speaks to both a teacher can read it administrator can read it it's written in a way that is approachable so thank you so much i i um, really, we really got a lot out of it. Um, but I want to give you, is there anything else you'd like to say as far as on the book, uh, for anything else? Yeah. Before we Go ahead. <laughs> There's one thing we have to say. There is a website. So we have a website, yeah. total participation techniques, plural techniques with an S.com. And there's a whole adoption, uh, like course adoption kit, if we, or PD adoption, it's, uh, it's got a, uh, PowerPoint, it's got handouts, got everything. Um, and well, we welcome any input or extra stuff that people have developed and we'll definitely give you credit for it. That can be posted on the website, but there's a lot of free tools for this book. And there's also tools for all the others, but um, in particular, there are nice resources that are free and downloadable. Awesome. Thank you. Yes, I we are going to link to your website and we're also going to link to the discussion guide for this book that uh, was on the website uh, for ASCD. Are you gonna be appearing at any conferences? Where can we see you? Where can we learn from you? <laughs> Jenny, <laughs> it's a little intimidating, but we're at Amelie in the fall, yeah. October. And we're working with some schools in various states this summer that have been bringing us in, but yeah, I think Amelie yeah. will be the- sort of Yeah, Is Amelie's- that the uh, 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 middle-level educators? Yeah. 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 Awesome. And we're going to be hopefully, hopefully at the ASD leadership uh, yeah. conference. And when is it? That's, uh, in, that's in, October. in October. I think we'll see. We haven't um, been formally, that, the proposals haven't come out for that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, it's been kind of interesting, kind of trying to crawl our way out of the pandemic. So mm -hmm. um, not a lot of, of public venues, we're doing a lot of private things for schools and districts, but. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I put on my my notes. Fingers crossed, we'll see you out there, and you know, yeah. we, we just take it day by day. And I I just can't thank you enough. And I hope that uh, we get to talk to you again sometime with your next release, and we will be watching. And for our listeners, if you have any um, all of the any questions about the resources that we covered, they'll all be in the show notes, and um, you can always contact SST eight. And that's it for our sixth season of Eight with Eight. A tremendous thank you to Bill and Parasita Himaly for joining us today. And of course, for their great book, which inspired this season. I loved how Bill remarked that in some ways, the educational workplace is very different than it was years ago. No more smoking in the staff room, no more pantyhose dress codes. And yet some things about the way we work are still very much the same when maybe they shouldn't be. 
Today's conversation took us deeper into some of our favorite topics we explored this season, but there is so much more that could be said. So we really want to encourage our district and building leader colleagues to consider using this season as a jumping off point for further learning and reflection and dialogue amongst your staff. To that end, we've included ASCD's book study guide for this text, the Why Are We Still Doing That book? But you could really have this conversation in so many ways. You don't even have to do a formal book study. You could talk about things like, what is working in our buildings and our classrooms? How do we know that it's working? What evidence do we have? And when we have that evidence, how do we replicate those practices in other places? And conversely, how do we support each other in letting go of a practice that we can't provide evidence for? These could be conversations that could sustain a faculty throughout an entire year or more of self-reflection and exploration. But first, summer. To all of our Region 8 educator colleagues, we wish you a restful and restorative summer that is just better than ever because you deserve it this year of all years, whether you are off contract and taking some time for yourself or whether you're working over the summer and wrapping up one year and preparing for another. Thank you for all that you do for the children of Ohio. And we'll be back in the fall with another season of 8 with 8.